Solidarity. It's become a buzzword. But what does solidarity mean in reality? How do we practice solidarity as activists, as organizations, as people who care deeply about building inclusive schools, campuses, workplaces, and neighborhoods? How can solidarity lead to changes in policy and institutions and in the ways that we live? My name is Deepa Iyer, and you're listening to Solidarity Is This, a monthly podcast where you'll hear from people and institutions around the nation who are experimenting with multiracial solidarity. So you might be wondering, why a podcast on solidarity now? After all, people and organizations have been practicing solidarity for hundreds of years without calling it that. Whether it's standing up for their neighbors or being part of campaigns to build political and economic power. More recently, we've seen solidarity to support the movement for Black lives, indigenous communities fighting against the Dakota Access Pipeline, and Muslims affected by criminalization and surveillance policies. But there is something, I think, about this particular moment that calls for more transformative solidarity practices. As communities of color, immigrants, and refugees are facing unprecedented levels of physical violence, incarceration and deportation, and walls and bans, it seems even more important that we connect issues, people, and experiences together to reach our shared goals. It's also personal for me, this exploration of solidarity. I'm an immigrant, born in Kerala, raised in Kentucky, and a woman of color who's been working over the past two decades to lift up the voices of South Asian, Muslim, Arab, and Sikh communities who face Islamophobia, racial profiling, and hate violence in post-9-11 America. I'm curious to understand if solidarity practices can help eliminate the false and divisive narratives that have emerged about our communities since 9-11. And finally, as we all know, the United States is quickly transforming into a nation where people of color are the majority population. How do we build bridges in this rapidly changing racial landscape? How do white people in rural Appalachia find common cause with undocumented Latinx or Asian community members? How do South Asians address anti-Black racism within our own communities while proclaiming that Black lives matter? How do we refuse to be pitted against each other and instead build power together? These are some of the questions we'll tackle each month on Solidarity Is This. You can also find a Solidarity syllabus that accompanies each podcast, along with other resources and links, on www.solidarityis.org. This is our first episode of Solidarity Is This, and it's called Bystander Upstander, to explore the practice of bystander interventions as expressions of solidarity. I began thinking about this after the terrible tragedy that happened in Portland, Oregon, over Memorial Day weekend at the start of Ramadan. A Muslim woman and her friend were traveling on a train in Portland when a man started yelling slurs and confronting them. Three men intervened, Ricky Best, Talation Namkai Meshe, and Micah David Cole. Best and Namkai Meshe were stabbed to death by the attacker, and David Cole was hospitalized. The attacker apparently had expressed white supremacist, anti-Semitic, and Islamophobic beliefs. Since the tragedy, Portland community members have been coming together to highlight both the historic racial dynamics in the state, as well as uniting behind messages of solidarity. So on this month's podcast, I am so grateful to two activists who are joining us to share their wisdom. Joseph Santos Lyons is the director of the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon, and Debjani Roy is the deputy director of Hollaback. 
Joseph and Deepchani, welcome to Solidarity Is This. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. So, Joseph, I'm going to start with you. In the introduction, I talked a little bit about what happened in Portland. Tell us about how the racial dynamics in the state have been manifesting themselves in real life, especially since the election. Yeah, Oregon, you know, about 4 million people. And when I grew up here in the 70s, it was less than 10% people of color. Today, we're almost 25% people of color in the state. So one in four Oregonians. And we've just seen just a wide-scale intensification of hate incidents. The Southern Poverty Law Center has reported that we have the highest density of white supremacist groups that are operating here. And we're really beginning to, like, feel the impacts of how the Trump election has opened up space for more harassment and intimidation, particularly amongst communities of color. So it sounds like it's, in a way, emboldened more people to express their views. Is that right? It's definitely emboldened. And, you know, Oregon has come out of this, you know, 100-plus year history where state was really seen as a white sanctuary after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And white settlers really were able to take lands. There was an Oregon Land Act that provided 160 acres to white male settlers all the way up through the efforts to really keep people of color out of the state. You know, even though, you know, it's seen as this progressive bastion, we just yeah. have all this legacy of institutionalized racism. And we see it really continuing to sort of segregate and isolate communities of color. But that said, our communities are growing. Asian and Pacific Islanders and Latinos have grown over 60% in the last decade. And, you know, it's an amazing place to raise a family. But the conditions are still such that many of our folks of color really feel at risk here. And I think folks, when they come to this state, they don't quite realize how intense the racism is, especially Mm -hmm. in our liberal places like Portland. So tell us a little bit about what has happened in the wake of the tragedy. I mean, obviously, your organization, the Asian Pacific Network of Oregon and others have been addressing this dynamic that you talked about for years. What has shifted since the tragedy that happened in Portland over Memorial Day weekend? Yeah, well, Apano has done some, but there's definitely more we need to do. Because the perpetrator of the Max attacks, Jeremy Christian, was at the April 29th, quote-unquote, March for Free Speech, which we really saw as a hate march on 82nd Avenue, right outside of our offices, we really took special note of what was happening. I was there personally on April 29th. I observed Jeremy Christian. I saw this march. And it was like I was totally emotionally unprepared for what I was seeing. White men marching and chanting, waving flags, having like Confederate symbols and neo-Nazi symbols. And so when we realized, well, one, the tragedy of the attacks on May 26th, and we engaged with our Muslim and other community color partners here right away, We just felt like we had part of a story and a narrative to tell, and we felt like the media wasn't doing a very good job of talking about the legacy and seeing this just as an isolated incident. Mm. So we ended up, you know, really engaging with a number of of our sort of coalition partners to be able to both, I think, bring some voice to what's happening and then begin to still work behind the scenes to organize our communities around sort of both our resistance and begin to put some demands before our elected officials. That's great. And I want to come back to that and hear more about what that solidarity work 
which, as you said, is rooted in framing and acknowledging the historic dynamics in Oregon looks like. But I wanted to bring Devjani in. Devjani, the three men on the train in Portland really went from being bystanders to upstanders, people who made that choice to intervene. And we've been hearing more about these sorts of bystander interventions, especially since the presidential election and amidst a climate of increased hate violence, as Joseph has described happening in in Oregon, but is happening in other parts of the country. But bystander solidarity is not new, right? And so could you tell us a little bit about how and where it has originated and give us some examples of the types of situations people often intervene in? I think the case that made bystander inaction or lack of intervention most famous was the murder and sexual assault of Kitty Genovese in 1964. It was a situation where she was asking for help. She had been attacked and over 30 plus individuals turned their lights on, looked out the window and heard this woman or even saw this woman, Kitty Genovese, yelling for help, but nobody intervened in any way. And at the end, she died. In 1968, two social psychologists decided to do some reason by standard intervention and what actually moved the person to intervene. And what they found was when there is one individual witnessing or hearing about a situation of harassment or violence that they're more likely to intervene than if there are many people around in one particular incident. Mm. This is called the bystander effect or the diffusion of responsibility. That's really helpful to hear about the origin of the bystander effect, as you call it, and how it has I guess, shifted in public imagination since then. Tell us a little bit about the stages of bystander interventions. I know that Hollaback has a particular approach that you train people on. So tell us a little bit about what the stages are. We call them the five Ds of bystander intervention. And the first D is direct intervention. And that's where what we saw happen in Portland, where people addressed the harasser directly. And it's often seen as a confrontation. When we talk about direct intervention, we do suggest to people to use that one with caution and to assess the mindset or the possibility of escalation in the situation and in the actions of the aggressor, because it is often the most risky intervention, as we've seen in many instances. The other aspect of direct intervention is to address the person who's being harassed and ask them, are you okay? Do you need help? Should we call for help? The second D of bystander intervention is distract, and that's a more creative way of intervening. And the purpose is to de-escalate a situation by Mm -hmm. asking the person harassed about something completely unrelated to the harassment. It would be something like asking for the time, pretending you're lost, asking for directions, pretending you know that person from Mm -hmm. the neighborhood or from college or from school. And the whole point is to ignore the harasser so that they will eventually go away. We do ask people to be aware of their identity when they use distract. Mm -hmm. And then the third D is delegation. And that's where you seek in the help of a third party, probably someone in the position of authority, like a security guard, a teacher, a transit employee, a flight attendant, someone who can come to your aid, especially if there's a fear of escalation. But you can also delegate to someone who is also a bystander who might look like they're in a better position to intervene in that particular situation. So it'll require us to communicate with those around us. And for that, the one question I wanted to ask you about that is, it's also important to be careful about reaching out to law enforcement, right? Because some folks might not want to deal with law enforcement. 
Absolutely. In our trainings, we always say if you are questioning um, the involvement of law enforcement or other types of authorities, to use a direct and ask the person who's being targeted who they would like to call to give them the agency to make Mm -hmm. that decision. Of course, a lot of this stuff happens very quickly. And so we ask people to make their best judgment, Mm -hmm. but there's usually an authority figure outside of the police who can intervene. Right. Okay. And then the other Ds? The fourth D is delay, and that's something that all of us can do, and that's when something happens in passing, like a verbal comment or a look of intimidation, you know, very quickly comes and goes. Checking in with the person after the fact and asking them, are you okay, saying, I saw what happened, I didn't agree with what happened, I couldn't do anything else, but are you okay, do you need anything? And then the fifth D is um, fifth D is document, and mm-hmm. that's a tricky one. Because you don't want people spectating, giving something, and then putting it online directly. And in addition to Hollaback, there are other organizations that folks might be interested in. The Montgomery County Civil Rights Coalition has a training on bystander interventions and a set of guidelines and principles. And we'll be putting links up to all of those up on www.solidarityis.org with the Solidarity Syllabus. But Dave Jenny, one more question for you, which is, you know, when people hear about what happened in Portland, there is a natural tendency to say, you know, I don't really want to be an upstander. I don't want to intervene because look what could happen, right? And what do you say to people yeah. like that? How do you kind of um, allay some of those fears? Absolutely. We've been hearing the same thing from a lot of people. The thing is, when we do our training, we're asking people to reflect on who they are in terms of their identity, race, sexual orientation, and all of that, as well as their personalities. Are you an introvert? Are you someone who doesn't want to draw attention to yourself? Are you afraid? So we consider people's identities, their blocks, their personalities, and then we we ask them to choose one of the five Ds that works for them. There are things like delegation or delay that might Mm -hmm. not put you in as much harm, whereas direct is probably going to be a little bit more risky. Right. Okay. So people can choose what tactic they want to use based on the situation as well as their own comfort levels. Absolutely. Joseph, I want to turn back to you. Given what Dave Johnny has told us about bystander interventions, and obviously that happened on the train in Portland, tell us a little bit about what the conversations have been in the communities that you work with. Are there more people that are interested in getting engaged directly, indirectly? I know that there was a June 4th rally that was coordinated by several white nationalist groups and communities responded to that. So tell us about what those responses and interventions have looked like. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks on May 26, I really have to say that, one, the families of those who are directly affected, including the two young women of color, one of whom was Muslim, really, I feel like, helped set the tone for the solidarity work that's needed. You know, there weren't the, like, knee-jerk reaction calls for you know, the death penalty and sort of all this sort of, you know, intense sort of over-policing sometimes that happens, but really a call for our communities to be organizing and working together. Mm-hmm. And so I think out of that energy, a lot of our organizations, you know, immediately started meeting. We actually had to sit down with law enforcement, with the mass transit agency and elected officials. And you know, our organization, amongst others, really called for a strong public response from mm-hmm. our political leadership. And we're able to sort of both work on both a press conference and some public statements that were sort of widely circulated throughout our communities. 
but we also were paying attention to these two sort of follow-up actions that were being planned. June 4th was really the part two mm-hmm. of the free speech march that happened on 82nd Avenue on April 29th and was being organized by sort of this emerging connecting of anti-immigrant uh, white nationalists and anti-Muslim groups. Mm. And then there was the June 10th Act rally, the anti-Muslim rallies that were happening around the country on June 10th. We were calling for both of those to be canceled and we were, you know, really putting public pressure and really lifting up our community's outrage about those events happening, both in the context of this tragedy, but also just in general, this doesn't speak to our values as Oregonians. Mm -hmm. And we're really seeing some of these outside forces, these national sort of white supremacist forces seeking to use this space and to capitalize on this tragedy. We were very pleased to see our mayor, Ted Wheeler, really speak very forcefully from the position that we were hoping and using his sort of public position to amplify our community's concerns. And as a result, the June 10 rally actually was canceled. Mm -hmm. The June 4th rally went ahead as a Sunday afternoon outside of City Hall next to the federal building. The federal government was actually responsible for permitting that rally, and they refused to uh, rescind the permit. There was a significant amount of law enforcement. There were maybe 300 of these folks who showed up on June 4th, the sort of quote-unquote free speech folks. And there were probably about 3,000 folks in the community who showed up. Mm. Our organization didn't formally show up, in part because there just was so much, I think, questions around safety and is this a place for folks of color to be and immigrant folks. Mm -hmm. But I was there. uh, There were actually a number of folks of color who were there. uh, But really, a lot of our white folks were really present and created space. And there was both sort of a more sort of intensive anti-fascist sort of space. There was a more peaceful, sort of explicitly nonviolent rally where the majority of folks were. And then labor also really came out and held down like a side of sort of fronting this white supremacist rally and sort of had their own sort of presence and visible support. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty intense day that afternoon of June 4th where we really sought to counter this sort of public articulation of what we saw as anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-government forces here in our state. And Joseph, how are you all planning to move forward? I'm especially curious, given that this is a podcast on solidarity, what the conversations are like in terms of building solidarity among communities of color, uh, centering Muslim immigrant communities in particular who are really under attack on the front lines. What are those conversations about solidarity looking like in Portland? You know, at the very, very basic level for groups like Apano, we're really focused on that community organizing and centering Mm -hmm. the communities that are most affected in the struggle. And that really does take deep relationship and ongoing work. You know, many of our groups have worked together on campaigns in the past and that has given us some sort of foundation. Uh, But clearly the moment is now to sort of strengthen those relationships, engage with new people who are in those groups or in leadership and ensure that we sort of have some cohesive sort of structures. One of the main structures for us is a statewide coalition called One Oregon, which has really sought to like push forward a sense of progressive values in the public electorate so we can 
create the kind of institutions that support our communities, everything around being able to push back on sort of choice and anti-immigrant and anti-voter measures that we're expecting. That uh, coalition has really been drafted into this immediate sort of response as well as it really engages our sort of statewide uh, Basic Rights Oregon, the gay rights organization, groups like CAUSA, our Latino immigrant rights mm-hmm. organizations, and Unite Oregon, which is one of our strongest immigrant refugee advocacy groups here in the state. So it sounds like capacity building, organizing, centering communities most affected and having sort of a broad-based strategy, multi-pronged strategy that has a policy agenda, all of that is what you all are thinking about. And I think it's important to hear because there are other states and other communities facing similar challenges. And I think that what you all are doing in Portland and in the state as a whole can be a great example for others. So thank you for the work. And for folks who might be interested in learning more, um, please check out Apano's work at apano.org, where you'll also find a very thoughtful statement that they put out after the tragedy in Portland. So Devjani, giving you the last word to tell us a little bit about how people can learn more about becoming trained in bystander interventions and where they can go for that. We're doing a special offer where you get trained for free using the promo code Hollaback Summer on our site, iHollaback.org. And we also do in-person training. So if you're interested in requesting an in-person training and we do work nationally, you can contact us at holla at iHollaback.org. That's great. Thank you so much for not just taking the time to join our podcast today, but for the work that you do day in and out, Joseph and Devjani. We all appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us on. Thanks so much for having us, Deepa. I look forward to getting in touch with the work you're doing. And you'll find the resources that Joseph and Devjani talked about, as well as many others, over at www.solidarityis.org. Check out the Solidarity Syllabus on the site and contact me with your own examples of solidarity happening in your communities, schools, workplaces, and neighborhoods so that we can feature them on our podcast. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us on this month's episode of Solidarity Is This. Until next time, here is a quote to ponder from Bobby Seale, co-founder of the Black Panther Party on Solidarity. He said, you don't fight racism with racism. The best way to fight racism is with solidarity. It's a timely message for the resistance. Join me again next month for another episode of Solidarity Is This. (laughs) 